It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by barrister and solicitor Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. What's on the agenda for today? Well, uh, the first uh, case on the agenda arises uh, from a person uh, over on the Lower Mainland uh, that just repeatedly and persistently uh, claimed to be a medical doctor uh, when she was not. Uh, the person's name is Maria Azati, mm-hmm. uh, and she had uh, for a number of years uh, held herself out to be a doctor, uh, having uh, material resumes, writing her name as Dr. Maria Azati, um, and she was performing uh, medical procedures, including injecting people with uh, Botox uh, and fillers and various things, uh, purporting to be a uh, uh, licensed to do that. Ugh. And so what happens when people start uh, engaging in that activity? And I should say this, yeah. it, it didn't go well. Oh, no. Uh, people, uh, one person wound up with a disfigured, disfigured face. Uh, numerous people wound up uh, with uh, severe reactions, potentially life-threatening harm. Uh, it was really bad news. Chilling. So what happens when somebody does that? Well, Uh, In British Columbia, we've got an act called the Health Professions Act, um, and we've got the College of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, which is the uh, uh, self-governing profession for doctors. And so that organization, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, can go to court um, and make an application for an injunction to order somebody to stop pretending to be a doctor, performing medical procedures. And so, indeed, the College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons did exactly that. And starting back in July of uh, 2017, they got uh, an order ordering this person to stop doing what she was doing. Uh, But it did not have the desired effect. Hmm. The judge found that uh, within a week of that uh, order being made, uh, she was right back at it uh, with greater intensity. And so she was found to be in contempt for breaching the order. Uh, And then on and on it went uh, with uh, repeated uh, applications in court. Uh, and uh, repeated failures to pay the fines and follow the uh, orders. And she was doing things like trying to evade service of uh, uh, orders. Um, I must say I smiled as I read the account that was uh, clearly came from a diligent process server who showed up to serve her with documents, which she refused to take, allowing them so the process server just put them on the ground. She hopped in a car outside of the clinic she was working in, drove away. One minute later, somebody came out of the clinic, so clearly the processor <laughs> sat and watched, watched them pick up the documents. The woman drove back to the clinic, went inside, and then the process server watched her walk out five minutes later, holding the documents in her hand, read them, and put them in the trunk of her car. So, good on the process server. No doubt she was aware of these various orders. Uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons took steps to get orders permitting search and seizure, which is interesting. That's permitted under the Act. Yes. And as a result of those, they were able to search her home, clinic, vehicle, and they were. You know, this was after the court had ordered her to stop doing it. This is now in the year 2000. Yes. Uh, sorry, 2020. Uh, and searching her car, they found boxes of toxin, dermal fillers, 615 syringes, promotional material calling herself Dr. Maria Azati, cosmetic procedures, resumes with the name Dr. Maria Azati printed on them, um, informed consent forms, all of this material. Um, she then went further. Um, she was uh, ordered to attend uh, court 
um, and uh, she showed up in what appears the judge found uh, faked being sick, pretending to have uh, symptoms of COVID-19 to avoid uh, a hearing on June 4th and 5th. She showed up and pretended to have a cough, uh, and then somebody went to her house from the college, and she didn't seem to be sick at all. Hmm. Uh, judge found this to be further evidence of her lying to the court. Yes. And so in the face of all of this, the judge had to say, well, what do we, what do you do with somebody who just will not, uh, will not stop? Yeah. It's causing that kind of serious harm. Um, she was also refusing to pay the fines, claiming she couldn't pay them, although the judge found all of these procedures were extremely lucrative. That's why she kept doing them. Yes. Uh, and so ultimately, uh, the judge has ordered her into prison. And uh, so the college sought a nine-month jail sentence for her. Mm -hmm. Uh, The judge found that nine months would be uh, too much, but six months was appropriate. Uh, And so the judge directed, and I must say I enjoyed the language, the sheriffs and all police officers are directed to immediately take Miss Nzadi into custody and deliver her to the Alouette Correctional Center for Women. It provides the address, helpfully. I'm not sure whether we need all police officers to accomplish that goal. But in any case, Miss Nzadi is going to be enjoying the comforts of the Alouette Correctional Center, and hopefully she reflects upon claiming to be a doctor and injecting people with substances that are disfiguring them and causing them pain and life-threatening uh, harm. So... Anyways, good good to see the uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons and some diligent process servers are staying on this. But uh, boy, oh boy, what a huge risk! Uh, people think that uh, a person who's uh, injecting them with things and giving them advice is in fact a doctor and, and is just some person uh, making up fake resumes and brochures in order to make money. So, Indeed, the the awesome. brazen nature with which this was presented, I find shocking. So. What what are we to say about the risk that was uh, imposed on anyone who underwent these procedures over the, what, three-year period, the story that you just told transpired? Yeah, well, the judge found that um, she had committed contempt on many days. The judge found there was specific evidence of 30 individuals who were exposed uh, to were harmed by these injections. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them, the judge described as uh, were at risk of more serious and potential life-threatening harm. One of the individuals received... Uh, uh, toxin and dermal fillers that cause disfigurement uh, and uh, enduring pain and bruising and had to ultimately go to a real doctor uh, for treatment. It required a whole series of injections and treatment by somebody who actually knew what they were doing to try and address that. Uh, and so she sort of left a swath of harm and uh, risk and pain uh, behind her in order to make money claiming to be a doctor and injecting people uh, with things for um cosmetic purposes uh, when she just had no uh, uh, credentials to be doing that and uh, the result was uh, was exactly this so hopefully the uh, correctional center for women uh, produces the desired effect and she doesn't uh, come back out and uh, uh, carry on with this but uh, anyways if you have somebody claiming to be a doctor Azati who wants to uh, inject you with something maybe check with the College of Physicians and Surgeons to make sure that they're properly licensed to do it. Indeed. Registries of regulated uh, professions, lawyers, doctors, and others, always necessary in my view. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. You can look up, like if you want to see, you know, somebody a lawyer, for example, you could go to the Law Society website, put in the person's name, 
and you'd be able to see, okay, yes, they're a lawyer. You know, here's how long they've been called for. Here's what their address, contact information is. You can also look up to see, does the person have any disciplinary uh, history or other things of that sort? All of that is transparent. And the same would be possible with the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So uh, if uh, you've got somebody uh, who you have some concern about, check with the right uh, regulatory agency to make sure the person's uh, uh, qualified to do what they're doing before they start injecting toxins into your face. On to our next story. I'm reading here. The concept of good faith. What does that mean and what requirements are attached to it, for example, in a contract? Yeah, this has been something the Supreme Court of Canada has been, broadly speaking, expanding over the past few years. They cut these concepts of like when you enter into a contract and how you perform a, a contract, this concept of good faith uh, we'll talk about in the case currently being uh, just decided uh, is uh, connected to a, t- a concept we spoke about uh, not long ago involving the idea of honest performance of a contract, right? Not dece- you know, deceiving somebody you're in a contractual relationship with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of those are really movements in a good direction. Sort of the, they're sort of those principles we all should have learned in kindergarten about how we treat one another. Uh, but doesn't always uh, occur in practice. But this particular case uh, arose out of uh, Vancouver, and it was a case involving a contract between a uh, Waste Tech Services Limited, who uh, disposes of garbage for the Greater Vancouver Sewage and Drainage District for Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Uh, This company had entered into this long-term contract with the Greater Vancouver Sewage Drainage District, basically the Vancouver metro area, Mm in order to do things including trucking garbage to various uh, facilities for disposal. Uh, and uh, the contract provided that there were three possible places they could drive the garbage to, and basically the further away the place was, uh, the more money they would get paid for delivering the garbage to that location. That sort of seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, contract also allowed the district to dis- to pick which one of the locations uh, the garbage was going to be delivered to. Uh, and what happened is that the district decided that they were going to have the garbage delivered to a closer location uh, rather than the far away location because it would be less expensive to dispose of the garbage there. Mm-hmm. The company objected to that choice. Uh, and they pointed to the fact that, and this is something that I'm sure can only exist in a contract to enter into with the government, the contract had a targeted profit <laughs> built into it. Hmm. The idea that the company would get paid, uh, would, or the objective would be that they would get paid essentially 11% more than it cost them to do the work. Which is an interesting thing. Hmm. That's the kind of contract I'd like to enter into. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? And I'll stack them on top of each other, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So... The uh, waste company said, look, the the district uh, chose the closer garbage dump and didn't have us uh, drive this off. I think it was to Cash Creek rather than a location near the city of Vancouver. And they said, well, we're we're not making money or as much money as we uh, had hoped for here because you haven't had us drive the garbage unnecessarily a long distance. Uh, And so the contract provided for arbitration. They went to arbitration and the arbitrator found that indeed this concept of uh, sort of good faith concept uh, was breached by the district when they chose to have the garbage not trucked to a further away location because it resulted in the company making less money. Um, that, of course, would have a bizarre uh, implication 
if you had uh, unnecessarily driving garbage halfway across the province in order that a company could make more money doing it. That sort of uh, makes you feel pretty foolish if you're riding your bike around or driving your electric car or something. Yeah, yeah. There might be diesel trucks loading garbage unnecessarily some further distance so that the uh, greater, you know, the metro district can pay more to the garbage company. That seems pretty outrageous. So the... Uh, happily, the Greater Vancouver Sewage and Drainage District appealed that, and it got all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, who just concluded that, uh, as the lower courts did, that the arbitrator was wrong. Uh, and even though there is a, this concept of good faith, uh, that that concept is highly uh, context-specific. And what you need to look at is, what was the intention of the parties when they entered into the contract? And here... Uh, when you look at the contract, it was clear that the uh, the government, the regional district, was able to select which of the various locations for the garbage they wanted. And choosing the uh, close-by location wasn't some decision made for some improper purpose. It was a decision made to spend less money trucking garbage places, <laughs> right? Mm. Save money, probably help the environment, all kind of reasonable reasons why you wouldn't want to unnecessarily drive garbage around the province. And so the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed the lower courts in overturning what the arbitrator initially found, saying that even though there is this concept of good faith, which interestingly the Supreme Court of Canada has made clear you cannot contract out of, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just write into your contract, I don't have to act in good faith. You still do. Uh, But that if the decision like this one is made for sort of some legitimate purpose, like not wanting to pay more to unnecessarily drive garbage around, that is in good faith. Uh, And the concept of good faith doesn't require one party to a contract to subordinate their interests to the interests of the other person. Um, You just can't be doing it for, you know, some improper, unrelated uh, purpose, for example, right? Sort of out of spite or to get the other person or some sharp reason like that. So, I think that is an appropriate way to look at good faith and this other concept of sort of honest performance. Uh, and the takeaway there is, look, you know, act in good faith, be reasonable, uh, and don't, you know, do things for some improper purpose. But it doesn't go so far as to, uh, even in a contract like this, which had this target profit figure, uh, require uh, that you uh, choose something that would uh, be totally disadvantageous to yourself uh, harmful to the environment and a waste of money in order to ensure that the uh, other party can uh, make the amount of money they really hope to make driving the garbage further. <laughs> so that's the uh, outcome, I think, from the Supreme Court of Canada. All right, let's take our break. Legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. We return to Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. As we continue looking at the latest developments in the world of legal affairs, what is a default judgment, Michael, and how does it relate to the category of uh, civil litigation? Sure. Well, a default judgment occurs when somebody, you sue somebody, you serve them with all of the paperwork saying, you know, come to court and respond to this within a period of time. Um, And the person receiving it just does nothing and turtles, (laughs) doesn't show up, doesn't file anything. Um, And if you don't file a response when you're served with a, a notice of civil claim, ultimately the person who served you wins by default, basically. You can just get the order you were asking for. And so turtling is a very bad response if you're served with documents uh, indicating you've been sued. Mm -hmm. 
There is, however, a process where you can apply to set aside a default judgment, uh, and there was a decision just released uh, dealing with uh, such an application, uh, and it uh, reiterated what criteria need to be met in order to succeed in setting aside that kind of a default win, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And the uh, criteria include things like you have to show that you didn't willfully or deliberately fail to file an appearance when you were served, that you made the application as soon as reasonably possible. You also need to show that there's some meritorious defense or defense worthy of at least being looked at, right? There's something to be done here. You're not just stalling. Yeah. Um, and there has to be some evidence of those various things. And so in the case that was just released, it was an individual who uh, signed uh, a promissory note uh, and then didn't pay $90,000 back. So, not surprisingly, the person who lent the $90,000 sued him. Hmm. Um, And uh, the person who was sued turtled, and he just didn't do anything. He didn't file a response to it. Um, And the judge found it wasn't some unsophisticated person. He was a securities advisor uh, with Freedom 55 at the time. So, sort of person who didn't know uh, what was going on in the world. Um, he did nothing, didn't file a response, so the other party got the default judgment. Uh, the party who got the default judgment then uh, garnished his wages to try to recover the money back in 2016. Again, the fellow did nothing trying to set the judgment aside uh, and then came along uh, last year, 2020, and said, hi, I want to set it aside now, four and a half years after the fact. Hmm. Um, and both the original judge and the Court of Appeal concluded that he cannot do that, uh, because none of those criteria had been met. He, he was uh, aware of the original uh, uh, action. He, he had been garnished. He was well aware of it. He didn't do anything to set it aside then. His explanation was that his mother had been depressed at the time. Uh, the judge found that there's just no link between his mother being depressed, of which there was no evidence, and him not filing anything or doing anything. Um, and uh, further found that there was no apparent meritorious defense. The fellow had... Uh, who had uh, uh, borrowed the $90,000, claimed in oral submissions that he was pretty sure that it wasn't his signature on the promissory note, uh, but he signed it on camera and acknowledged that he guaranteed the loan. So... Uh, that I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it's yeah. you, well, and you and you examine witnesses on a regular basis, Michael. Human beings don't like to lie uh, as a general rule, so what they'll do is they'll try to get right up to the line that would be a lie without crossing it, while yeah. at the same time trying to create a helpful impression. I'm pretty sure that's not my signature. Not totally sure. One could be pretty sure and still not technically be lying. Well, here's a video of you signing it. <laughs> So uh, this fellow was unsuccessful in setting it aside. And furthermore, uh, the judge pointed out that um, if you uh, allowed this fellow to set it aside four and a half years later, it would be quite unfair to the person who had lent the money because he would have a harder time trying to prove his case after four and a half years than he would have at the time. Uh, And so uh, the moral of the story is don't turtle. You've got to respond or you just lose by default. Um, So that's the takeaway there. Now, in terms of establishing the value of a default judgment to ensure that somebody couldn't just go along randomly, you know, suing people on an assembly line saying everybody owes them 90,000, hopefully you get a certain number of non-responses and cash in. Surely there are protections against that. Well, I mean, I guess the fundamental protection would be you need to, in fact, serve the other person, prove that they were given notice of it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're given notice of something, if you don't agree with it, you can't just ignore it. You have to reply to it. 
Um, and if you had somebody who was repeatedly uh, doing that, they'd likely get uh, classified as a uh, litigious uh, litigant, and uh, you'd wind up with a or vexatious litigant, and you'd wind up with an order that they could uh, not do that any any longer without permission. Mm. Uh, but you do have to respond. That's the takeaway. Interesting. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. We've got about two and a half minutes left in today's segment. Yes, I think the last thing which was uh, just announced today is going to be very interesting to watch, and that is uh, the Br- province of British Columbia is making an application, or has made an application, to the Federal Minister of Health, uh, pursuant to Section 56 of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Mm-hmm. That section allows the Federal Minister of Health to grant an exemption uh, for any class of persons uh, to uh, being in possession of drugs if they find that it would be necessary for medical or scientific purposes or otherwise in the public interest. Mm-hmm. And the province of British Columbia is act- asking that uh, that section be used to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs for everyone in the province of British Columbia. Uh, And the background of that um, is that there's a report to be released today showing that last year, 1,700 people in British Columbia died of drug overdoses. In context of COVID so far, there have been 1,269 deaths. So we've got hundreds of more people dying of drug overdoses uh, than have died of COVID. Uh, and so if it seems to me, if one is an emergency, sure that surely the other one is. Hmm. Um, and the approach here, uh, what's being proposed, wouldn't involve simply uh, a free-for-all of drugs. It would still be illegal to traffic in them and make them and do all of those things. Indeed. Some remedy, but uh, our effort so far at using the criminal law to stop addicted people from using drugs um, simply has not worked. Uh, and uh, what we have produced by that, not only our continued deaths, but that's why your car or home are going to get broken into for people stealing money uh, in order to feed their drug habit, uh, and uh, people are continuing to die. So mm. it's going to be very interesting to see what the uh, Federal Minister of Health does with that application, but there's clearly power to do that, and it will be interesting to see whether uh, the government chooses to do what's being asked of them by the province of British Columbia. Michael Mulligan, we appreciate the benefit of your insight analysis. As always, thank you so much. Until next week. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. Take care. Bye now. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking.